Chance. That's Hello and Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. It is July 5th, 2022, and I've just arrived in Churchill and have settled into the B&B, Sarah's dream house, with one other guest. A young couple came to Canada to visit Churchill years ago and decided they wanted to change their lives and call the North home. The rest is history, and their B&B sustains them along with other jobs. First things first, time to explore. I lace up my hiking boots and head out the door, but not before pulling on a bug net over my head. The mosquitoes seem the size of ping-pong balls, but you can't get me, I smugly announce. It's a beautiful, sunny, warm day. I walk down Hendry Avenue to James, and then Kelsey Boulevard is in front of me. The main street. ATVs and half-ton trucks pass me as I walk. Some drivers with hands raised, but most hardly taking notice of yet another tourist in town. I walk past the various establishments, names I recognize from searches. The Seaport Restaurant, the Northern Store for Groceries and Dry Goods, Sea North Tours, with whom I have booked two tours. I turn north on the last street, Bernier Street, and follow it to the shore of the big body of water. This is Hudson Bay. I am here at Hudson Bay. I can't quite believe it. I'm not prepared for what I see, nor my reactions. Signs tell me to stop and be aware of polar bears. A tour group is down on the beach, so I feel safe blending in with them. I only have to be able to outrun a few of them should a bear appear. I stand on the shore and squat to put my fingers in the water. It doesn't feel cold. On the beach are scattered pieces of ice in odd shapes and sizes, some as big as a small car, and none seem to be melting despite the heat. The ice is dense, so dense my fingernail makes no impression in the ice whatsoever. I gaze out to the bay, and as far as my eye can see are chunks of ice, blackened and grey, motionless on the water. I feel an odd sense of my own insignificance, considering the curious who came to these shores before me, for thousands and thousands of years before me, those who called the Hudson Bay Lowlands home, who stood at these very waters. I think of Nahue, who knew this coast intimately and completely, a landmark she relied on to tell her she was home. I think of the explorers wanting to chart this land, to understand this land, to conquer this land, and eventually to claim this land. I stroll back and forth along the shore, lost in my thoughts, trying to understand the purpose of my journey here and what it means to me and what I will do with the information I gather from this experience 
It's hot as I stroll back down to the grocery store to gather some food to take back to the B&B. July 6th, I spend the morning reading my notes over regarding Fort Prince of Wales and its construction and its demise. I write a list of questions, uh, reminders of what I will see when I visit the fort tomorrow. I'm booked to do the Sloop Cove hike. We are to be taken across the massive Churchill River, a mile wide at its mouth, via a zodiac. Sea North Tours will do the honours. I double-check the times and allow an extra 15 minutes so that I'm there early. I'm always early, chronically early, so much better than being late. I look back at my notes. During the Pleistocene, the ground Churchill is on sat beneath 9,000 feet of glacial ice. The Pleistocene ended almost 12,000 years ago. I'm not sure it's relevant to my concerns now or the concerns of Nahue, but it is hard to comprehend that much ice. My phone rings. The tour tomorrow has been cancelled due to nesting turns near Sloop Cove, the young woman explained to me. The turns are extremely aggressive when they are nesting and have attacked several hikers, so all future hikes to Sloop Cove are cancelled until the eggs have hatched and the turns have settled. I'll be gone by then. I'm a bit heartbroken. I'm not sure one can be a bit heartbroken. It's an all-or-nothing sort of emotion. I'm heartbroken. But there's always a but. I can still go to Fort Prince of Wales, but from the other side of Sloop Cove, where the turns are not. That tour will be tomorrow at one. I try to recover my disappointment. The rocks at Sloop Cove were of interest to me for several reasons. Sloop Cove is two miles or 3.2 kilometers up the Churchill River from Fort Prince of Wales. The cove shoreline is several meters higher than it was during the 1700s due to the resulting rebound after, after the glaciers were gone. Large iron rings were driven into the bedrock by the Hudson's Bay Company to which the sloops were moored. The cove served as the winter harbor for the fort and the sloop ships found winter haven there. On the stones and bedrock are carved names of souls long departed. Samuel Hearn etched his name there on July 1, 1767. He was 22, if that date is accurate. Some speculation exists that the month and day was added due to its significance of being 100 years before Canada's Confederation. Several other names have been carved, none of which I can find listed in the Hudson's Bay Company biographical lists of employees, except for George Holt, who etched his name in 1771. In August of 1771, George Holt was discharged from the Hudson's Bay Company. He sailed back to England in September of 1771. He etched his name in the black quartzite rock of Sloop Cove before he returned to England. Before his departure, he had lived and hunted with the Cree and most likely had a relationship with Nahaway's mother, Thukach, during that time. I surmise that Holt is Nahaway's father. Holt signed back on with the Hudson's Bay Company in March of 1779 and sailed back to Churchill under the command of Samuel Hearn aboard the Charlotte. Also on the ship with Holt were members of Thukach's family, 
that's why I, I think of the connection, and I'll speak more about that later. I didn't get to stand on the rocks where George Holt carved his name 250 years before my visit to Churchill. I gathered up my notebooks in my backpack, tied on my hiking boots, and bug net, and headed out the door. I've come to the Hudson Bay shore again. The many icebergs that had lined the shore the first day I was here have vanished with the tide, but the surface of the bay is still covered with ice flows as far as the eye can see. Small fish are washing up at the shore. A man of about my age is strolling along the water and points out to sea. Belugas, he says. I can hear the huffing as the small whales break the surface, not more than twenty feet in front of me. They are feeding on the capelin, he says, bending to scoop up one of the fish to show me. I nod and smile at him. I grew up here, he says. When we were kids, we used to ride the whales. We'd get them in shallow water where they couldn't dive and shake us off, and we'd ride them. He hooted and laughed, pulling his cap from his head. It was great fun, he said. His smile big and his eyes were alight with the memory. I told him I didn't think many children could share such a story from their childhood. He turned to go, and I thanked him for his story. He turned back. What brought you here, he asked. My grandmother, I said. My great, times four, grandmother. She was born here in about 1772. He was nodding as I spoke. I'm glad you've come. Good luck, he said. You'll be glad to have remembered her. It was only the two of us on the shore, and after he had gone, the quiet was only interrupted by the belugas huffing as they gently and quietly break the surface of the bay. I scan the area for polar bear before I find a bench to sit on. I wonder if a polar bear raised its head above the water at this very minute, if I could outrun it. I think positively and sit. I pull my notebook from my backpack and switch my glasses and begin reading. The Churchill weather is greatly influenced by the bay. They call it marine weather. This huge body of cold water keeps temperatures on the coast moderate. Summer maximums are lower here than inland, with no or rare occurrences of night frost. The prevailing winds are westerlies, July and August are the warmest, with 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. The highest precipitation falls in July, August, and September. Most of the snow falls in late autumn. Autumn is the stormiest and most unsettled weather, with overcast skies 75 to 80 percent of the time. Coldest temperatures are in January and February. This isn't surprising. The bay freezes over completely. Any openings create rising vapor, which obscures views from the air. Flow edge, called Sanak in Inuktitut, is also known as the line of life. It is where landfast ice meets open water of the Arctic Ocean and is more persistent on the west side of Hudson Bay. The high winds here give the area the highest wind chill values in the winter months for all of Canada. Again, not surprising. The Churchill River breaks up in June. The ice in the bay breaks up in early July, but continues to float. 
The tundra here is generally four to five inches thick, made up mainly of lichens and heath. I'm not exactly sure what heath is. I had to look it up. The first description I found said comprised of heath-like plants. Hmm, not sure that helps. My notes say dwarf willows and dwarf birch occur on the tundra with only a few struggling spruce. Blueberries, lowbush cranberries, gooseberry, raspberries of two species, four species of grasses. Some stunted poplars, knee-high, grow on rock ridges. Labrador tea, sphagnum moss grows where there is little drainage. A thick layer of peat accumulates and is acidic, so no white spruce grow, but black spruce doesn't mind the acidic soil. Labrador tea is of the rhododendron family, and the leaves and flowering shoots are made into a tea and used for treatment of a variety of ailments, including sore throat and cough. The variety of animals found on the tundra in the Churchill area are relatively few. When Europeans first came, the large animals were caribou, muskox, tundra wolf, polar bear. But now only the caribou and polar bear are numerous. The caribou was of the most importance in Nahue's time. Caribou spend the summer on the tundra far north of Churchill. They begin to drift south at the end of the summer. In early August, they take a leisurely pace to reach forest by September. Caribou were well fatted by this time, and their meat was at its best, but the skins were not as good. Polar bears move north in the spring along the coastal tundra and are usually not found at the mouth of the Churchill River in the summer. In fall, they move south along the coast to, to wait for ice on the bay. If the ice is slow to form, they may congregate in the Churchill area and residents must be on the lookout, and they have an alarm system in place for such sightings. The last recorded kill of muskox was in 1897. The white tundra wolf is now absent from the region. Arctic fox, arctic hare, collared lemming and weasel and brown lemming have a southern range which includes Churchill. The Churchill coast does not have stable ice due to its straight edges or only slightly curved shores. And with the absence now of small offshore islands due to the rebounding from glacier weight, as a result, there is low seal population who instead choose areas with good coastal ice, coastline with lots of inlets and the like. This makes the ice more reliable and young seals don't slip into holes and get gobbled up. And of course, the beluga is common in Churchill. Its migratory path brings it back to Churchill and up the Churchill River every summer. They average about 10 feet in length. 3,000 belugas call the Churchill River home in the summer months, with 60,000 of them in Hudson Bay. The average life expectancy of a beluga these days is 10 years. They are extremely sociable. Their bulbous forehead, called a melon, allows them to make different facial expressions. Belugas are born dark gray, and by the time they are 8 years old, they are white. Two-thirds of the world's population of belugas spend the summer in Canadian waters. They use a wide variety of sounds to communicate and help each other find food. I close my notebook and pull my backpack on after switching glasses again. I listen to the belugas feeding. 
I can't see any polar bears coming my way, so I head to the train station to visit the Parks Canada display. I can't believe the heat. I wasn't expecting weather like this in Churchill. The Parks Canada installation in Churchill occupies space in part of the railway station, and though the rooms are small, a lot of information has been packed in. The original Hudson's Bay Company post at the mouth of the Churchill River never rose to the level of trade of that uh, York factory, but the company had other plans for it. The British were in constant tangle with the French, So in 1731, the construction of a massive stone fortress at the mouth of the Churchill River on the rocky treeless peninsula of Eskimo Point began. The fort was intended to provide refuge for company ships during times of war with the French. Despite anticipating the fort's completion in seven or eight years on the assurance of then-Governor Richard Norton, it would take 40 years to complete Fort Prince of Wales. I described the structure of the fort in previous podcast episodes, but Parks Canada described the fort as an impressive accomplishment and one of the most magnificent stone structures on the North American continent. It boasted 40 cannons ringing the parapet, guarding every approach to the fort. I wasn't sure what a parapet was, so I looked it up. It is a low protective wall along the edge of a roof, bridge, or balcony. That makes sense. A well for drinking water was in the center of the cobblestone paved courtyard. To protect the mouth of the river, a gun battery was constructed at Cape Mary in 1748, on the other side of the mouth of the Churchill River. Fort Prince of Wales was Britain's answer to the huge French fortress at Louisbourg, built in 1719 on Cape Breton. Britain went to all the trouble of building this massive structure only to leave it poorly manned with a tiny crew of 39 Hudson's Bay Company laborers and tradesmen who knew little, if anything, about warfare or even how to fire the fort's cannons. And so Fort Prince of Wales was surrendered to the French, who sailed into the bay with three ships manned by almost 400 soldiers and sailors in August of 1782 without a shot being fired. The French used their cannons aboard their ships to take the fort down. Within hours, the French took down what had taken 40 years to build. Then they sailed to York Factory where they torched the post there, destroying it completely. The only intent of these actions was to destroy or disrupt the Hudson's Bay Company fur trade on the bay. This was not an act of war, but rather an act of greed. Parks Canada included York Factory in their display. The post had to be rebuilt after the French destroyed it in uh, September 1782. With the amalgamation of the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company in 1821, and with the abandonment of the Southern Great Lakes route to the west, York Factory became the hub in the fur trade in the region. In 1831, work began on an 18,000-square-foot facility, which still stands today. Samuel Hearn eventually returned to the site of Fort Prince of Wales and took charge of the building of a new post, Fort Churchill, five miles upriver from the site of Fort Prince of Wales. 
Trade resumed with the Dene, Cree, and Inuit people, but the vision the Hudson Bay Company had for the original Fort Prince of Wales was never achieved. Parks Canada display includes life at the forts and how officers and servants pass the time. The officers of the Hudson's Bay Company were all European men, and the class structure, as was so evident in Britain and the land they colonized, was brought to North America with the company, always maintaining a separation of officers and servants. Though Britain and its colonization around the world did much to harm Aboriginals, I believe the imposing of their class structure and religion was the most harmfully pervasive. The installation also made mention of the contribution of Indigenous women. They served the company as interpreters, guides, and negotiators. They were employed by the company to further trade with coastal and inland tribes. They supplied the forts with provisions and made snowshoes and clothing that were essential for survival. They raised children and managed domestic affairs. They prepared furs for trade and transport and hunted small game for food. Without them, the Hudson's Bay Company would not have had the success it did. Nahaway was one of these many women who ensured the survival of her company officer husband and their subsequent children. Next, my trip across the river to Fort Prince of Wales. I can't wait. Hi, hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi, hi for listening. Bye for now.